Induction. Relaxation. And we are go for rapid sequence education. And welcome back, everybody. It's lovely to have you listening in to another episode of Rapid Sequence Education. How are we doing today, everybody? Feels good to be back. Yes. After our small hiatus of mandatory holidays, which were welcomed. I do like how you quantified it as small. No matter when (laughs) this episode comes out, it's small. Be it months from now, small hiatus. We're doing well. Just a small hiatus. We're always at work, working hard. Exactly. Doing great things. So just to remind you about who we are and what we do, um, in case you've forgotten in the long months that have passed since you listened to our other wonderful Rapid Sequence Education episodes, um, we're just three junior doctors uh, kicking around Melbourne, different hospitals with interest in critical care, trying to break down the the complicated world of, of medicine, especially critical care medicine. So what are we doing today, Evan? Yeah, so we've got a really interesting case for you today. Uh, sweet and sour dysglycemia. Sounds like a takeaway meal. Um, <laughs> Beware. Exactly. We'll crack on. So, I mean, just to start off, um, get the ball rolling. Um, do you both want to try and define hypo and hyperglycemia? Mm, a tough one. Mitch? Throwing the ball to you. Hypoglycemia. Uh, look, we can we can define it in terms of, um, I suppose, the blood sugar level. Um, the, but within that, you need to think about mild, moderate, and severe, um, because they're going to change how you go about, I suppose, your triaging of the problem and your interventions. So. Without, you know, saying that I can't remember the exact values. <laughs> this is actually a really, really good point, Mitch, because, no, no, like, we, we, should, we shouldn't laugh at this, but it's, you, you know, when you see a patient, you get paged to check their sugars. I don't think, like, unless their sugars are horrific, you know, we start to think about sugar control when you hit around, you know, three, four millimole per, per liter. But, you know, without remembering the exact numbers, I never think, oh, in isolation, this person has a blood sugar of 3.7. I'm either worried or not worried. Like that's, mm. it's a bit silly to look at numbers of that context, right? So I know what, that I know that when I'm looking for mm. sugars and I see one below 3.5, I'm thinking, okay, is this person eating? Do we need to think about some form of replacement? If mm. it's going into the twos, I'm thinking, okay, this is something that needs to be addressed. And if I see a one in front of the number, I'm I'm going quite quickly to that room to to try and make an urgent intervention, and I think, you know, I, so I suppose, um, yeah, that would be that would be my sort of triaging and impression of hypoglycemia. Now, Evan, you're a bit of a a bit of an expert in this area. <laughs> I was going to say this is I was going to say this is something near and dear to my pancreas, but I don't have one. <laughs> so, so I am a type one diabetic. Um, and I suppose these numbers kind of um, make make sense to me just because they've been drilled in my head since I was first diagnosed when I was when I was seven. Um, but really, hypoglycemia is low blood sugar. Hyperglycemia is high, and we do have some some arbitrary cutoff numbers that define those. So hypoglycemia is defined as a blood glucose under four, and then hyper is generally over ten point one. 
So that's what we mm. think about. But Mitch, you're exactly right. You know, like you, you've got a really good kind of numbers and um, you, you use that to kind of, in addition to your clinical scenario to really decide how you're going to triage the patient. And I suppose that's what's really important. Mm. And and the other thing I should probably mention is Evan would know a whole lot more about this than, than I would, but you know, it's not one size fits all. Like if, if somebody had a sudden drop in their blood sugar, especially if they haven't had fantastic glycemic control, you might not necessarily get to a level of, you know, below four before you start to feel symptomatic. If you have a swing from say like 15, where you usually sit to to five, right? That that sort of person would, would have theoretically subjective symptoms, you know, the things mm. that you normally feel they would feel unwell with that kind of sugar drop essentially is what that's I'm trying right to say. and it, i mean and if they were someone who didn't have an endogenous way of lifting their blood sugar that mm. would then prompt you to make an intervention mm. exactly right and we always think about it as well i guess in terms of what we refer to as the normal glycemic set point so uh, for example you know um person x might have a normal blood glucose of around 5, 5.5, whereas a diabetics might be, you know, 15 to 17 to even 20. And so then if they drop from 20 to 10, they can often experience the symptoms of, you know, hypoglycemia, even though that number um, isn't below four. Although, you know, they're not going to get any of the life-threatening things that we'll talk about, but they can still get a lot of the symptoms, um, mm-hmm. which we'll go through later. Mm-hmm. But I guess moving on, you know, why why do we care about this? Um, and I suppose the reason is, um, you know, hypo and hyperglycemia usually present in diabetics. Um, and this, you know, diabetes affects over 1.2 million Australians. So that means that, you know, every doctor will see at least one patient with diabetes a shift, really. And so we need to know, you know, how how we spot hypo and hyperglycemia um, and how we treat it. And then some of the rare complications that can arise which we can go through. But I really want to throw this question out to everyone. Um, what are the co- causes of low blood sugar? Mm. I so, suppose... So. Oh, you go. No, oh, Mitch, no, you've interrupted me. Now you have right away. <laughs> cut in front. <laughs> like, I suppose the, the first thing you need to do... Now I'm going to really cut in front. <laughs> uh, I, I like to think about it in terms of, um, I suppose, starting from the top, inadequate intake. So someone who hasn't had any sugar in their diet could have low blood sugar. And taking that to an extreme, I mean, we could we could even pull that all the way out to starvation ketosis where, you know, you, know, you haven't eaten for so long that you're just going to start mm. lipolysing and, and producing ketones. And the people who are most likely maybe to do that would be people who, um, who drink a lot of alcohol. So these people may be at risk of hypoglycemia. Mm. It's really interesting. I, I find this particularly exciting. Um, you know, along with a lot of things in endocrinology, but um, alcohol actually uh, impedes a lot of gluconeogenesis mechanisms. So uh, we often, you know, at least I did when I was a medical student, I thought, oh, you know, alcohol, it's a carb. Surely you would go hyper if you were you know, a person with diabetes and you were drinking alcohol. Actually not true. So you, you shouldn't, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, Evan, but it, you shouldn't take additional insulin um, if you're going to have a heavy night of drinking, you should bear in mind that, that the alcohol is, is arrests gluconeogenesis in the liver. So you actually risk um, risk tipping yourself into a hypo if you have an extra dose of insulin before a night out. So many endocrinologists, you know, trademark nine out of 10, uh, recommend running a little high on a night when you go drinking. So that's, that's why alcohol is a very interesting one. 
Mm. And also, I, always... I guess. Uh, sorry, sorry, but you go. No, you go, you go. I was just going to add. On, uh, I know we're on Zoom, so uh, there's all there's that little half a second lag. But um, also, Aaron, adding on to what you said, I, I think with the alcohol impairing gluconeogenesis is more chronic rather than the one drink. But but I think you're right. But often also when you have a big night out and you have a lot of alcohol, you often don't eat mm. eat much if you get to that inebriated stage. So that can also drop your blood glucose multifactorial eh? Hmm. okay all right so we've talked about some factors that cause low blood sugar oh and we there we need to we need to talk about the elephant in the room um evan biggest cause of hypoglycemia <laughs> you're calling me an elephant um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, biggest cause of hypoglycemia we can think about you know exogenous insulin use um or just a diabetic patient that's been fasting, that's been given, you know, the rapid acting insulin. And we'll talk about the different insulins later. Mm. And maybe with a type two, maybe glyclozide, um, some of those more old fashioned um, oral hypoglycemic drugs can, can and have caused hypos before. Mm-hmm. Okay. What about going towards hypers? Yeah. So I suppose with hyperglycemia, we often think about that in the acute stress response. Um, in the body so you know especially after trauma or heart attack or after a big surgery um, Mm. you know that can that can cause high blood glucose Um, also in diabetic patients that either don't have enough insulin or just have eaten too many too many simple carbs um, or with exogenous steroid use as well Mm. and that that, the the physiology of that is actually quite similar because if you think of an endogenous versus an exogenous steroid release right that's you know if it's if it's endogenous you'd expect that in in the context of a trauma or a surgery so the the mechanism is actually the same you shouldn't separate those two things out in your head necessarily from a physiological point of view mm. yeah and really like i mean it makes sense physiologically right the body's going through a period of stress it's mobilizing the sugar stores the carbohydrate stores for fuel and for increased metabolism so makes sense Hmm. We have another one on our list over here that I've actually not heard of. Cocaine use, Evan. Yeah. Really, cocaine, cocaine use. use causing hyperglycemia. Yes. <laughs> you said that. <laughs> I, said, oh, I say this with no experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Uh, All right. Um, hyperglycemia. Let's talk about how it's measured. All right, Evan, how do you measure your, your BGLs? I'll leave this one for Mitch. <laughs> Mitch, how do you measure your BGLs? How do I measure my BGLs? Um, well, I've only had them taken once actually. It was after I finished a long run and I was looking rather sick. So, uh, some nice ambulance officer came up and, and pricked me in the finger and it took about five attempts, um, for them to get some blood out. You sure you worked <laughs> <Yeah>. in the ambulance? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's my no, I did, I did, I did consent to the, the yeah. finger prick. So Just it's, a man it's all, came it's all up my fault. Looking to draw some blood. Consented five times. <laughs> okay um well and i suppose yeah so adding on to the finger prick a lot of diabetics now have the whole continuous glucose monitoring thing as well so that's something to look out for if you're in the ed or if you're in theater um you know you just it's usually on the sides of the arms on the upper arms and it looks like a little circular hockey puck disc and i suppose that's that's more the informal bedside testing uh, methods there are you know, official laboratory methods, which become important when patients have extremely high BSLs and you wanting to still have a quantitative value. 
Mm. And I suppose um, thinking about the pediatric population as well, you know, if you don't want to do a finger prick at the start, you can always do a urine dip first to look mm. for um, sugar. Yeah. Interestingly enough, recently I, I had an experience with a, a patient that um, had a sugar so high that when we tested it on a finger prick, it simply said high on the machine. Mm. And, you know, depending on the machine that you use, of course, high can mean anything whenever the meter maxes out. And this particular machine high was something like 33.3. So, of course, you know, it was mostly academic at that point, but we definitely sent off a formal serum. So you actually draw the blood and you formally send off a serum glucose, uh, which came back close to 50. So, um, again, didn't really change medical management because I think, again, 33.3 versus 50 are varying degrees of extremely bad. But um, th there are other tests that you can run. And I suppose um, going back to that urine point that was really good that Evan made, um, you generally get glycosuria, and this is without, you know, having another medication on board that increases your sugar in your urine. Um, but, you know, glycosuria starts to occur at around B BSLs of around 13. That's when you saturate your, your transporters. So if someone's got glycosuria with no other explanation, then you can be pretty confident that they're probably above 13. And you know what, interestingly, I, I had this patient about about three or four months ago and I discussed this with Endo because I wasn't sure if this was real or not. And they were like, this is absolutely a presenting symptom. So it was a male patient. They had noticed that, you know, over a few months that they described that the drops of urine that were falling on the side of the bowl when they went to the toilet and on the floor were extremely sticky, like sticky to the point where this guy was wearing thongs in the bathroom and his thong stuck on the floor. Um, and the endo red said, absolutely, it's the glycosuria, like it's, it's the sugar in the urine that's crystallized and it's just made the urine really, really sticky. So my real interest my real interest here is why is this man standing in his own urine? <laughs> <laughs> there are far more pressing concerns here. I really wish I really wish I thought of that at the time. I was more <laughs> I was more fascinated with the with the sugar urine on the floor. All right, we we're gonna we could spend all day, you know, speculating on this this gentleman's urinating antics, but we we need to move on with the case, I think. Yeah. Vignette, please. Sure. So you're on a dreaded long day gen med cover. Feel the shivers around the room. And have just started your 8 a.m. shift when you get the following page. Mm. Mr. Jones in bed 13, South 5, BGL 21, please review. So guys, as you're walking to the room now. What are you thinking um, as you're going to review this patient? You, you've got no pages as of yet. For some reason, the ward round's been delayed by an hour, so you have time to go and see Mr. Jones. Mm. Um, but but what are you thinking of? What's what's going through your head? I, I suppose you go for you go. Me go. Me go first. Me go first. <laughs> um, a context is is everything. You know, uh, Mr. Jones could be a gentleman with very poor glycemic control who has type 2 diabetes and has been receiving corticosteroids or whatever while he is an inpatient. Um, or Mr. Jones could be a 13-year-old uh, uptunded boy lying in a bed, you know, ketotic. So uh, BGL-21, yes, it is high, right? But it, that that high, like we were saying at the beginning of the episode, could be on the spectrum of anything from uh, run to bed 13 to you know, this this guy is sort of, we're struggling with his glycemic control and there's insulin charted and we're working on it, but it's not an emergency. So mm -hmm. 
um, I, I guess we just have to flesh out the context and I'll pass over to Mitch to talk about which aspects of context he'd want to flesh out specifically. Totally. The, I think you've you've summed it up perfectly. I mean, Evan led us into the room, but I think unless someone's severely hypoglycemic, I wouldn't usually be rushing to the bedside of the patient without really thoroughly consulting the medical records to know a what their condition is. You know, are they a type 1 diabetic or a type 2 diabetic? Um, what are their glycemic trends? What have we got them on? And... Um, you know, if if they have something that's already managed, you know, I'll often be paged about patients who have, you know, a BSL of 21, let's say, but they already have, you know, let's say endocrinology input or, you know, gen med input who have installed an insulin sliding scale, or they were just before, um, you know, just due for their morning insulin dose and, and they'd taken a pre-insulin dose before notifying you. So I think in those situations, it's really important to, to, to know what's being given, what they're in for, and, um, and, and then, you know, try and collate as much information as possible um, because then you can really work out, I think only with, you know, access to all of those labs and all of that information, can you really make an informed decision of what's right to do for the patient and then guide your clinical context from there. It's good that you mentioned the, the timing um, uh, of the insulin doses and also uh, to jump onto that, the timing of, of the BSL, because um, if you're taking a BSL pre-insulin pre-meal, right, that has some diagnostic utility. If for whatever reason, you know, somebody got busy on the ward and the BSL is taken after dinner, right, or after they've snacked on a bag of, of you know, snakes, then like, yeah, I suppose your BGL shouldn't be spiking to 21 if you're perfectly healthy. But as a rule, most people in the hospital aren't. And if you've just had a massive sugar load, like a BGL of 21 immediately after the consumption of that sugar load, the diagnostic utility of that is probably less than or significantly less, I'd say, than than a pre-meal measure. This reminds me of a patient who I had um, overnights recently who insisted, uh, he was a type 2 diabetic, insisted that the flavor of um, Coke with sugar was so much better than Coke with no sugar that he wanted to continue drinking it despite his diabetic status. And the nurse would, would page me and say, I have to inform you about this sugar. And it would be 21, 22, 23. And I would ask, has the patient just, you know, had a liter and a half of Coke? And they'd be like, yes. <laughs> and I keep on telling them to please stop. And they just do it anyway. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes there are very good logical reasons why people's sugars are the way they are. And despite our best efforts, you know, they will remain high. Mm-hmm. Now, Moving on, I suppose, as as the clinician, whether you're a junior clinician or a senior clinician, the red flag that we think about in hyperglycemia is DKA or diabetic ketoacidosis. was wondering if we could just have a chat. Um, first of all, what would be the one bedside test that you would like to order while you're on the way to see that patient? And then can we just talk about some of the signs that you would see in the acidotic patient? Mm. Or do a VBG. I'm just going to button before Aaron gets in. Yeah, I was about to make a bad joke about doing a full neuro exam on the patient, but yes, VBG. <laughs> so we do a, we, we agree we'd do a VBG. Aaron, do you want to talk about what you would see, sort of clinical features at the bedside? Maybe before before we move on, though, yeah, mm-hmm. we do a, we do a VBG to kind of check for all the other things, but the VBG will take anywhere between two to five minutes to come back. What's a bedside test that we can do in five? Seven is like two to five minutes. I don't have that kind of time. Okay, a bl- come on, guys, a, bl- I'm, a BSL, I'm a BSL, a BSL, and a ketone. Thank you. That's- I'm dying here. Come on. So a ketone is the same machine that you use the BSL 
to measure the BSL, but the strip is different. So it's it's usually the same box. So um, once you're there doing the the finger prick for the sugars, you should you might as well do the ketone finger prick as well. I'm reminded of a time where I I called um, the GenMed registrar, um, you know, worried about DKA because I had a, a a patient who had a high sugar and a high ketone, and they were like, okay, what's the acid? And I was like, ah. Oh, I didn't check it. And they said, you know, because it's diabetic ketone acidosis. <laughs> so I think that's why that's why I I jumped on the uh the VVG train. <laughs> and now that Evan's done torturing us and we've talked about point of care ketones and VVG, yeah. uh would Evan be so kind as to tell us what the actual diagnostic criteria? And we've been poo-pooing a lot of diagnostic criteria, I think, but what what's the diagnostic criteria-ish? For, and and this will vary between hospitals, of course, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, look, really, you're looking for elevated ketones. Mm. You're looking for a blood gas under 7.3, so acidotic. Um, and then the other thing would be generally a uh, highly elevated um, blood glucose level, so capillary blood glucose level. And generally, when we think about the diabetic ketoacidosis on the blood gas, on the venous blood gas, we have a HAGMA, so a high anion gap metabolic acidosis. And that makes sense because those ketones are adding to that anion gap um, mm. and driving that acidosis. In terms mm. of the signs that the patient would have, you know, generally they can be quite uptundant. Um, they'll have something called Kussmaul's breathing, um, which is really, you know, an elevated respiratory rate that's driven by the acidosis. So the body's trying to, you know, breathe off um, uh, the carbon dioxide. And they can have um, sweet acetone-smelling breath uh, that I've never smelled just because for the past two years we've been wearing N95 masks. Um, and these patients look really sick. Yeah. I have to say that the only time I've ever felt unwell in, in hospital, and then sort of not, not personally unwell due to illness, but unwell because I thought that a person probably was was not doing well at all and I was quite worried about them, um, was, was a person in severe DKA. So that like they they look very very uptunded, um you know not not to generalize but they can if it's severe, um and and very unwell. So the sick not sickometer that you you use that you stand when you stand at the foot of the bed and decide whether you're panicking or not panicking, uh definitely goes off with severe DKA. They're very very sick looking, mm. Mm. and I think and, that they they could be you know they are in that sick, um you know, DKA patient, they're likely shocked as well. So you've got a patient that's sick with acidosis, weird electrolytes because of that um, acidosis, and they're shocked. So there's a few things going on that are mm. um, that really require your attention. Mm. And because we're a critical care podcast, of course, we have to mention that the type of shock that they'd be experiencing is hypovolemic shock because the main mechanism of concern in, in the context of DKA, you know, among many things. But the one that's sort of acutely worrying is that, of course, because your glucose is through the roof, um, you're going to try and diurese it off yourself. So you're going to be producing lots of glucose urea, which is going to be drawing lots of water into your urine, and you're going to be losing lots of fluids. So intravascular depletion is going to be very, very significant and severe. Mm. And then I suppose because we're also a crit care podcast, we have to talk about electrolytes. <laughs> <laughs> um, Evan, what what's the main sort of electrolyte disturbance that we get um, concerned about in DKA? Mm. 
So I always forget which way this goes because I know with the treatment you can get a refractory hypokalemia. Mm-hmm. Um, oh my god, I've hit a blank. I'm going to say right. it's hyperglycemia. Uh, sorry, um, hyperkalemia. <laughs> Yes, you're exactly right. So it's an interesting one, this hyperkalemia, and something that I'm quite passionate about. No, actually, not really, but yeah. (laughs) Does it it have to do with transporters? It it is quite interesting. So yes, you're exactly right. It's to do with transporters. So if you become acidotic, one of the transporters that you have in your little cells is a hydrogen-potassium exchange transporter. So your body says, I'm too acidotic. I'm going to swap potassium inside the cells because Remember, potassium is mainly intracellular for a, a hydrogen ion outside. does a switcheroo, and then you have more potassium outside your cells. Then your kidneys get to work, and they try and kick out all of the potassium. So your potassium can sometimes be normal or elevated. Now, as you said, Evan, like we get worried about hypokalemia, and the reason for that is even though they seem like they have just a mildly elevated like um, potassium or a, or a normal potassium even they have lost a bucket load of potassium in their in their urine because the body's been excreting it thinking that it's got too much mm-hmm. so that's when you know we have to think about potassium replacement which i'm sure we'll come to when we talk about management yes well aaron do you want to take the treatment basis uh, basics of uh, dkoa Absolutely. So the number one thing that you have to do to stabilize and sort of immediately address the issues with DKA is to give fluid, right? So you need, this is sort of a resuscitation type situation. Um, And because you're going to be giving lots of things after you give fluid like K and and insulin, you definitely need two large bore IV cannulas, you know, one in each cubital fossa. Um, There's there's no two ways around it. One's going to cut it. So um, the first thing- I might even say three. You probably need three. <laughs> One in the foot. Um, so anyway, so you, you definitely need to, to gain access as, as soon as possible. And then I, I would be, you know, we're going to assume that this is an otherwise healthy person for the purposes of this exercise. They have good functioning kidneys. They don't have a horrific, you know, cardiac uh, ejection fraction, abnormality or deficit. So I would be confident running a bolus of, you know, a liter into an adult male if I was confident that they were in DKA. Um, you know, they, they need it. They've lost fluid. Um, they need to be rehydrated. It has to happen. The one caveat that, that I'll make, and again, this is going to be slightly academic is in healthy people with, with good cardiovascular function and good renal function, um, they, they end up needing quite a bit of fluid. So, because you keep running saline and what happens is with, with lots of normal crystalloids at just 0.9 saline, you run the risk of transitioning them from a high anion gap acidosis to just a normal anion gap hypochloremic acidosis. The significance of this, I think, certainly at our level, is, isn't is huge. Um, again, it's it's sort of an academic ICU level discussion that, that I don't know the ins and outs of, but it might be worthwhile considering a, a sort of a more physiological fluid if you feel like you're going to be running heaps and heaps of fluid into a person. So that's step one, gain access and give them a bolus of fluid. I think it's now, now you're probably thinking, gosh, there's a lot of information. And, and if you're like me, you're probably um, overwhelmed, you know, when you first go to manage DKA, I think by far and away, the most important takeaway is every hospital, bar none, I would say in Australia, um, and for most of the developed world is going to have a DKA protocol of what to do when someone presents like this. So as soon as you've made the diagnosis of DKA, it's kind of amazing because you know 
what you need to do for the patient, and that is get the guideline <laughs> and then follow it to a T. And if you do that, um, they will become well again, you know, unless, and if they don't, you can talk to endocrinology and you would be talking to endocrinology anyway. And that's the, the golden rule with most things. And certainly in, in, in Australia, in my experience, that the more critical a situation is, the more reptilian brain you become because you get overwhelmed with the stress, especially as a junior doctor. And the more likely it is that the whole thing will be very clearly protocolized. And more so, the nursing staff on the ward will be extremely experienced and trained, right? Certainly, the, the more senior, the more trained they'll be. And they will actually say, this is our protocol for running insulin. So once you have made the diagnosis and you know looked at the, the document if you need to, that you you will work with the staff together to chart the appropriate insulin fluid infusion etc mm, absolutely um okay so we've talked about um the first priority being hydration i completely agree with that um evan what would be sort of your next priority that you need to think about yeah so our next priority is insulin and dextrose um and and really the the insulin is really going to be like you know the key the key to our cells to allow glucose to move in. Um, it'll drop the hyperglycemia, allow for ketone breakdown, um, and also um, what we were talking about before can can drop the potassium, and that's because um, potassium is required for insulin to enter the cell. Um, so that's something that we think about. But the insulin plus dextrose is really crucial after the hydration. Um, the initial, I guess, not even hydration, but the initial fluid resuscitation of the patient. Um, and just a really quick note, we give Nova Rapid usually, and it's usually a certain number of units per hour that we give along with the dextrose, and that's all in the protocol. Um, but really just touching on the onset of action. So when we inject Nova Rapid, the effect really starts within 10 to 20 minutes, um, and the maximum effect is usually between one to three hours. The actual whole duration of the Nova Rapid is about three to five hours. So just something to keep in mind. And then also, the reason why why we mentioned that, sorry, I'm going to interrupt you, is this, this isn't like, again, this is not an academic discussion here. This is my hard learned lesson in my first DK, where I had absolutely no sense for how quickly the sugars are going to drop. And I, this was the middle of the night. So I sat by a patient's bedside and I did 15 minutely BSLs, which is an absurd thing. So please, like there was, you know, the poor patient had the fingers all pricked by the end of the evening. So just think about the intervals, the the, the interval of time that it takes for the medication that you even to actually take effect um, before you do a test to measure, you know, how effective the treatment is. Sorry, Evan, back to you. No, no, that's okay. Um, and the other thing as well, I guess, is the reason why the protocol is so important is because we don't want to drop the glucose too, too quickly. You know, glucose is a solute. Um, it, it has a certain oncotic pressure um, in the in the vessel. And so when glucose starts dropping, um, it can actually lead to cerebral edema because water can move the other way out of the vessel into the brain. So we don't want to drop it too quick. Mm. Um, the other thing that we think about as well is we always will do an ECG and that's all kind of wrapped up and everything's happening in parallel. Um, and that's because we're really looking for any um, changes, any arrhythmias that can be driven by a high or low potassium. Mm, absolutely. Um, and for high, high potassium, um, I suppose our priorities would be to stabilize the myocardial membrane. And you can do that with the extremely, you know, safe um, calcium gluconate and and then your Nova Rapid and Dextro. So, you know, at, at that point, you know, that's where we're going with our treatment anyway. So, And guys, you know, one really interesting thing I learned 
um, the other day in the ED. So apparently calcium gluconate has a has a like a like a bioavailability that's three times less than calcium chloride. So often a lot of the newer um, like uh, where I'm working at the moment at the Vic Heart Hospital, all of their resource trolleys are stacked with calcium chloride. And I didn't actually know why, so I gave it a quick Google and then yeah, read that it's three times the bioavailability. So that was interesting. Go figure. The cardiac hospital will have, you know, <laughs> very effective cardioprotective products. Right? <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> makes sense. No, that's that's they have that in the um the Australian sort of um resuscitative council. Maybe it's an anos well. thing because it was in the anesthetics phone. Oh, no, I don't know why we particularly prefer calcium gluconate. calcium gluconate, but for whatever reason, it, that's be, that's yeah. the one that everyone must be seems must be cheap. But I, I I hear what you're saying. I doubt it. I mean, gluconate sounds like a a more complex. More yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So so just to throw some numbers you know, back on topic, throw some numbers to to our listeners so they sort of have an idea. And this will be very specific to your hospital protocol. But liter bolus that was the fluid, right? Insulin you know, one to two units an hour, plus minus bolus, depending on the, the protocol that you have at your hospital, right? Potassium usually comes in 10 millimole bags um, on the ward. And always remember that that a one, like if your potassium goes from four to three, right? A, a one unit drop in the blood level of the potassium represents, and again, you know, very variable, rough, dirty number, around a 200 millimole total body deficit. So somebody's hypokalemic, profoundly hypokalemic because you've given them insulin, giving them one 10 millimole bag of potassium isn't really going to fix your problem. You've got to be thinking about how much do I need to give? So, you know, if they're sitting at a potassium of three dropped from a four, consider four, five, you know, again, in the context of the patient, four, five mini bags, um, consider how much you need to give to actually improve the, you know, the, the the hypokalemia or impending hypokalemia driven by the insulin. And think about the fact that the insulin is going to keep working and keep driving the potassium intracellularly. So you sort of, you're not just fixing the here and now, you're also preemptively fixing things in the future. Mm. Mm. And then, you know, just wrapping up this part, um, this part of, um, of kind of the scenario that we've gone through and just ending it, just always remember to escalate at the start. Um, you know, this is one of those things that can go pear-shaped really quickly. You need senior support. But also we need to be thinking about the disposition of the patient because they likely have multiple comorbidities. So you might need to get many teams involved. Mm-hmm. Um, um, okay, so we've talked about some high or a very important complication of hyperglycemia. Um, we've discussed very briefly hypoglycemia and how we would get to the bedside very quickly for it. Um, but you know, what What are we actually thinking about and how do we manage these sorts of patients? I suppose, Evan, would you be able to start off just by talking about the, the clinical picture of what you might see when you go into a hypoglycemic patient's room? Yeah. So, I mean, generally a hypoglycemic patient, you know, they can feel cold and clammy. Um, they can they can start sweating. They can be quite confused. Um, sometimes as well, they can get quite angry. So I know with me, when I get hypoglycemia, I get very angry. Um, and my... Uh, you wouldn't like me when I'm hypoglycemic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so, you know, I guess everyone would be different, but generally it's it, it starts off as, you know, the cold clamminess, a little bit confused. And then as the sugars start to drop, we can go all the way up to the very kind of end, which is coma. Mm. Um, yeah, absolutely. I've walked into a few patients' rooms, um, unfortunately, <laughs> uh, where they've had very low sugar. Um, the first time was extremely scary and... 
Uh, the second time was far less scary. So it's it's one of those things where you can't really prepare yourself for your first hypoglycemic patient. They they look terrible. Um, and I think the the main thing to think about is, you know, don't worry about it too much. The treatments are very easy and straightforward, and you're not going to do harm to the patient by instituting treatment in whatever way you can um, with a small caveat. I suppose, Aaron, would you be able to start us with what you would, you know, maybe like to give to someone who is severely hypoglycemic? Let's pretend they've got a um, a BSL of 1.4 and they're, they're, you know, starting to have GCS signs. They're looking a little bit obtunded. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this, this happens, unfortunately, more frequently than you might think in a hospital iatrogenically. For example, if you've given somebody insulin for hypokalemia, can potentially give them a hypoglycemia or like we were saying before, if they had insulin. So the easy fix for hypoglycemia that <clears throat> that pretty much, I, I mean, even if you have hypoglycemia for a complicated reason, like some sort of uh, acute liver failure, right, is you have to give them sugar, right? And if they're, if they're really hypo, if we're sitting on a 1.2, like Mitch said, I'd expect the patient to be somewhat obtunded. So you know, you have two routes in which you can administer sugar, you can administer via mucosa, and you can administer it intravenously. So I wouldn't be messing around with things like oral glucogel. I would be putting in a line, or hopefully there's already a line in, and I would give them something like a 20 or 30 mil push of 50% dextrose. You can't give them a 50% dextrose drip, right? Because it's it's very, very initially very hypertonic. And I wouldn't be messing around with a 10% dextrose infusion over a long period of time because you need to give them a lot of sugar and you need to give it to them now. So it's just literally a syringe filled with 50% dextrose that you push directly into their peripheral IV line. And then very, very quickly, you find that that if this is a reversible cause of hypoglycemia, insulin, right, patients start coming to and recovering their GCS. Mm. That's that's the sort of acute. I, I had a um uh, an interesting situation where some I, I said to the nurse, you know, in my in my panic, I said, um, could you please get the 50% glucose? And and I said, give them, what did I say? I said, give them 25 grams. And it it's, it sounds it sounds really silly now um, because it's 50% solution. People think in volume, but I, you know, wanted to give them 25 grams of, of glucose. <laughs> so, you know, had I said 50 mil, you know, that would have been easy for the person to do but you know just uh, i suppose to know that in your panic remember that it comes in a, it comes in a bag of you know of of liquid and you need to tell them how much volume to give mm, because one liter bag 50 percent of the weight of the bag is glucose the bag weighs roughly a kilo so there you go no no it weighs weighs 25 25 grams Oh, I was thinking about the 50 mil bolus. No, no. Yeah. Oh, depending on the, oh, for the 50 mil bolus. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Depending on the type of bag and depends on how much you give you. But yes, correct. Awesome. Um, cool. And then sort of if the patient is a little bit less obtunded, Evan, do you have any other solutions? Yeah. So, I mean, we can think about some, uh, just some oral glucose. So whether that be an oral gel or rubbing it on their gums and then just following that up with, you know, a low GI carb sandwich, something like that. Um, and maybe some some fruit juice just to that, make sure that yeah. mm, definitely that's super important evan could you elaborate on sort of high gi low gi because that's if somebody's not obtunded but they're hypoglycemic this is i think a really useful thing to think about yeah so i mean i suppose if you give someone a, a really high gi food so say something like a jelly bean the blood glucose spikes and then it comes back down fairly quickly 
if you give someone something low GI, so say, for example, like a wholemeal sandwich or something that they usually have in hospitals, you're going to rise in the glucose, but that glucose stays at a nice constant level for a longer period of time. So it avoids that refractory hypoglycemia that we can see. And, you know, the last thing you want to do is be giving people multiple hypos overnight and just going in, you know, doing your pushes of glucose because that'll be a problem. Yep, I, I completely agree. Um, there's one further intervention that we could give for the severe hypoglycemic. Um, Evan, would you be able to take us through that particular medication? Are we hinting at glucagon? We are hinting at glucagon. <laughs> yeah, so um, glucagon glucagon is a, a, a really interesting one. Um, I, I've never had to use it yet in hospital, but I'm pretty sure it's, it must be on the wards like an EpiPen, I'm guessing. And, and I think what it does is it stimulates gluco, gluconeogenesis from memory. So it pretty much, uh, does it? Or gluc- uh, yeah, it makes it your stimulates liver glu- break down glu- glucose. Exactly. Glycogenolysis as well That's as something. gluconeogenesis. Yeah. Um, I've heard that because I, I remember being given the pen when I first got diagnosed and I remember the doctor specifically telling my patient, uh, my parents, apparently after you use it, you feel extremely unwell for at least a day. Um, and it's a, a really good thing to think about in terms of first aid, if you're in the community and you don't have access to, you know, jelly beans or glucose or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And orange juice treatment. Orange yeah. So glucagon, glucagon makes people sick. They will, they will vomit every time so apparently you you give them the glucagon and then you get the bag wow. <laughs> and uh, i mean and try and establish access because the, i think the main reason why you would be giving glucagon is that you don't have iv access because of course you can give glucagon im whereas with these glucose preparations in an obtunded patient you're restricted to iv if they can't mm-hmm. take it transbuccally or or orally mm-hmm. yeah and never, never give glucose PR. Um. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was hinting at when I said mucosal. I know. I was like, if I was having a severe hypo and someone gave me PR glucose, I would come <laughs> back from the dead. <laughs> yeah, I, there's not, not really a, a great argument for it. But I think the takeaway from this hypoglycemia discussion is that hypoglycemia will kill you. And, and you know, you can definitely get hypoglycemic brain injury. And that's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. And it does happen. I've seen it. But hyperglycemia in somebody that's had a bit too much insulin that is under your direct care, right? Or, or even in a healthy person who just received insulin because they were hyperkalemic, um, it is not going to kill them, right? You're going to be A-OK if you do that. So don't don't be precious with the glucose to reverse a reverse severe hypoglycemia. Okay. Let's, let's try and, you know, distill this episode into four salient points. Um, the first one is hypo and hyperglycemia is a common call and junior doctors need to have a framework to manage it. And a little tip on that, just make sure you go and read um, your hospital's protocol and DKA. The second point is that hyperglycemia is very common in the hospital and you should always be thinking about why. And we're thinking here, DKA being our red flag versus a missed insulin dose versus just poor glycemic control. Um, and Aaron and Mitch, do you want to take away the last two? Absolutely. I'll take my, my favorite hobby horse. Hypoglycemia, very, very bad. Hypoglycemia, very scary. Definitely give lots of sugar for hypoglycemia. Absolutely. And if you can't give sugar, give glucagon. <laughs> because you will make the patient unwell, but you will save their life. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in. It's been a bit of a long one, but I think it's been a bit of a good one if I pat my own back. Um, 
Tune in next time for further exciting episodes. I tell you which ones, but it's a surprise to everyone, including us, because we haven't written them yet. Definitely including <laughs> us. <laughs> Take care, everyone, and we'll see you next time on Rapid Sequence Education.